Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Dana. Hey, Mark. Are you looking forward to the new year? I try not to think about it as the new year as much as my birthday, because New Year's Eve is my birthday. Oh, that's, yeah, I did know that. But uh, this is also the turn of the new decade. So which is better, your birthday or the turn of the decade? Mm, well, I'm going to be on my way back to London on my birthday, which means I won't be celebrating New Year's Eve. But um, my mother used to tell me when I was a kid, all the fireworks were for me. So if we continue to operate under that premise, maybe it's a draw. Okay, fine. That works. What are you looking forward to about the, ch- um, the change of the decade and the new year? Well, clearly it's going to be IMO 2020 when new regulations come into force for the global shipping industry. Clearly. Mm. Joining us today in the studio is Richard Chatterton, who is our lead oil analyst. And Richard's actually based out of our Singapore office. Uh, Mark and I had a business trip to Singapore last year around the new year. And Mm -hmm. Mark, what do you remember most about Singapore? Chili crab. uh, Yeah, it was really tasty. Apparently it doesn't come from Singapore, though. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe if anybody from Singapore, they can correct me on that. But uh, yeah, tall buildings. I don't know. And the Merlin. Don't forget the half mermaid, half lion. Right. Well, the thing I remember most of all about Singapore is when you look outside the window and you're flying in, you see ships in that bay, more ships than maybe I've ever seen anywhere. And I actually grew up in Northern California. I've seen quite a few ships in the San Francisco Bay, but Singapore, you've got more ships in one bay than I even thought was possible. So it is perfect that we have Richard Chatterton joining us today to talk about shipping uh, and IMO 2020. We actually write a monthly report about IMO 2020. If you would like to read it, you can find it on the Bloomberg Terminal at BNEF Go, on BNEF.com, or on the BNEF mobile app. And if you're already turning this podcast off thinking, ah, it's about shipping, it's not for me, well, you'll find out pretty quickly that this really applies to pretty much every sector. So have a listen, stay tuned, and uh, let's jump in with Richard. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear our full disclaimer at the end of the show. Now let's jump in with Richard. Hi, Rich. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. IMO 2020 is a phrase that I was not familiar with until this year, but is pretty much all anybody can talk about in the shipping industry at the moment. Can you please tell us what it is? Well, being an oil analyst, it's pretty much the only thing that I've worked on for the past 12 months. Um, IMO 2020 is the most important regulatory change to impact oil product markets for decades. It is creating significant disruption and and complications for the shipping industry, but it's also a big deal for the refining sector. So from the 1st of Jan, the sulfur fuel content specification 
uh, as regulated by the International Maritime Organization, will fall from 3.5% sulfur content to 0.5% sulfur content. Now, that is a really, really big shift. To put it into context, sulfur has been regulated out of pretty much every other sector where oil is used. Why? Because it's a very undesirable pollutant uh, that causes localized air pollution in, uh, in an urban setting. If you look at uh, the regulations which, which have come into force over the past decades to, to, to reduce the sulfur content of road fuels, uh, which were uh, quite significant um, if we go back to the 70s, 80s and, and early 90s, uh, they were causing acid rain. Uh, it's, it's, it's really something that's un- undesirable. So regulators acted to, to, to push down the sulfur content of, of road fuels and other fossil fuels which are used in built-up areas. What this then resulted in, though, is that uh, refiners are faced with a problem. When you, when you look at what's in a barrel of oil, it's hydrocarbons and there's impurities. One of the key impurities is sulfur. Um, if you push sulfur out of the um, uh, of the of, of the barrel um, across across diesel, across gasoline, across kerosene, um, it ends up in the bottom of the barrel, the, the, the residual, so to speak, um, which uh, is the main source of supply for the for, for the bunker market for shipping fuels. So what you've ended up with is this concentration of sulfur emissions from oil essentially accumulating in shipping fuel. An interesting statistic is that 15 of the largest ships actually emit more sulfur than all of the world's cars now because the regulation around road fuels is so stringent and the, and the, and the absence of regulation for shipping fuels uh, means that, um, that sulfur, sulfur emissions in, in, the, in the shipping industry are unconstrained. So this is the first time, from the 1st of Jan, to be the first time that sulfur content will be regulated to a meaningful degree. And that is causing causing some big challenges. But it's been a step change coming for some time, hasn't it? It has. um, But this is the first time that it is creating a pain point. This is the first time that uh, shipping companies are having to install equipment to to comply with with more stringent regulations. And it's the first time that the refining system is having to significantly reconfigure and having to significantly react to a a new standard, which, which will require a wholesale re-engineering of the marine fuel supply infrastructure. Um, so there are different ways that you can comply. From the beginning of the year, you can either just buy low sulfur fuels, but you can also install, if you're, a, if you're a vessel operator, instead of buying low sulfur fuel, which may be more expensive, you can install a piece of kit on your ship to scrub the sulfur emissions from the flue gases. Um, these are these exhaust gas cleaning systems or scrubbers for short, um, which costs money. Like it can be, it can be um, several million dollars to uh, install one of these things. And the challenge is that there are only a few companies that have the capacity to, um, to install scrubbers. These scrubbers have been pretty commonplace in the power sector for some years now. They have, yeah. Are the same companies that install them there, are they the same ones that install them on ships? Um, it's a good question. I think that a lot of the technology is the same, um, but the, the, the main companies are marine technology companies or mm-hmm. marine engineering companies, your Alpha Lavelles, your Vozillas, your Yara Marine. Um, but there's no doubt that they also you know, sell into the supply chain that, uh, that, that, that provides similar equipment to stationary, stationary applications. So, so if I'm a stationary provider, should I see this as an opportunity? Well, a lot of people saw this as an opportunity for um, the uh, 
for the marine engineering companies. Mm -hmm. And we did see sort of in the run-up to IMO 2020 or in in the run-up to the discussions, um, maybe last year in in 2018 and and early part of 2019, you saw significant increases in the share prices of of, of some of these companies. But the, the expectations for scrub adoption have actually fallen off somewhat. Um, and I'll tell you why. What, you, what you've had is is this sort of face-off between the refining system and the shipping industry mm-hmm. as to who acts first. It's kind of a bit of a first mover disadvantage, right? If you like install, a game of chicken, huh? Absolutely. If you if if you're a, if you're one of the big um, uh, vessel operators or, or shipping companies, if you install scrubs on all your vessels in the expectation that um, you're gonna uh, you're gonna make more money by complying that way, I should probably explain the rationale to install a scrubber on your vessel is because you would assume that the high sulfur fuel, which you will then be able to continue burning, because remember, you're scrubbing the sulfur on your ship. You're, so you're still com- in compliance. You're, re- you're reducing your sulfur emissions, but you can still buy the high sulfur fuel, which should trade at a discount to the compliant fuel, which has had to go through you know, more extensive refining processes. Um, the, the gamble that you're making is that the, the multi-million dollar investment to install the scrubber will be paid off over time by the lower fuel costs mm-hmm. right so you you're essentially taking a bet on the outlook for fuel prices however if the refining system does one of two things if they um increase the supply of compliant fuel to such an extent that there isn't really a price spread between high sulfur and low sulfur fuels then it might not be worth installing scrubbers but then on the other hand it just might not be possible to buy high sulfur fuel over a period of time. If you think about it, you know, in the road fuel sector, when was the last time you ever saw leaded petrol for sale? <laughs> Good call. Uh, it gets regulated out of the market and suppliers will, you know, will will, will respond uh, if the market diminishes to a certain extent and if they have infrastructure constraints or they, they, they only have one barge that they can use to rebunker vessels in a particular location, they might just not offer high sulfur fuel oil in a particular place, which means that it doesn't matter if you have your scrubber or not, you're still going to have to pay for the, for the compliant fuel. So as a result, you've had a kind of very slow decision-making process from the shipping industry as to how many scrubbers we're going to install um, and we've got closer and closer and closer to the deadline. Earlier this year, there were some big estimates that were put out there by by other um, by other analysts, five, 6,000 scrubbers by by 2020. Our number's always been around about three, three and a half thousand. We think by the end of the year, the number will be about 3,000. So that means about one in 10 large ships will have, um, uh, one in 10 ships, not the largest ships, but uh, one in 10 of the, the Marine fleet will have, um, will have a scrubber installed. That means that there's this sort of equilibrium that we've got to, right, where... Um, Companies are sort of hedging their bets. They're installing a few scrubbers here, and they're they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna buy compliant fuel for the rest of their fleet. And what they're um, what they're what they're essentially going to do is wait and see see what happens to the price spreads. So if you're Alpha Lavelle or Watsilla, and you were making uh, people were making big bets on the number of scrubbers that you were going to sell over this period of time, you're um, uh, you've probably been disappointed by how this has turned out. But the scrubbers do have some advantages, don't they, in terms of timelines for the actual ships? Scrubbers have a number of disadvantages. I would say mm. they, they probably. They, I think. I think in terms of in terms of operational um, uh, in terms of operational flexibility, scrubbers uh, provide ships with less risks in terms of their bunkering operations because you could argue that 
in certain places from January 1, it won't be possible to um, get hold of compliant fuel. We can go into this in a minute, but I actually don't think that's going to be the case in most major bunker ports that is going to be availability. But if you were worried about that, you could say, okay, installing a scrubber means it's less likely that I'll have any issues with, with getting hold of compliant fuel. But the downside is there are operational challenges with having a scrubber on board. It's a complex piece of kit, which um, you, you need to have you need to have a certain degree of expertise and training for the crew to operate. There are inputs that you need to you need to you need to feed these things with with reagents, with soda ash, with lime. Uh, you also have an issue with wash water, and this is going to become a bigger issue, I think, over the coming years. There are two types of well, there's three types of scrubber. There's an open loop scrubber, there's a closed loop scrubber, and there's a hybrid scrubber. The, the, the names sort of expl- you know, sort of are self-explanatory. An open loop scrubber, what it does is it pushes water in through an inflow through the flue gases, dissolves the um, the sulfur content in the uh, in the exhaust gases, and then it just chucks the water out into the sea. A closed loop scrubber. It's the same process, but you have a, a self-contained closed loop where you have a storage tank on board, and uh, and and there is no there is no uh, discharge. And a hybrid allows you to switch between the two. The difficult thing about having closed loop scrubber is that a more expensive, and b they take up more space on the vessel. The problem mm-hmm. with an open loop scrubber is that it's not very nice. Well, it sounds like just any scrubber, eventually, right? What you'd actually want to push towards is is just compliant fuel, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, if you're an environmental advocate. Well, I think I think in terms of the way that the regulation has been structured it's, it's been a bit of a compromise because the ha- in principle it should just be we're moving to a lower um sulfur specification right. uh, for fuels let's let's get it done um but the argument was we have to give the industry a pathway to adapt a pathway to be able to uh to, to transition to that lower spec over time and scrubbers allow you to do that now i i think that in terms of the impact of imo we don't want to. We don't want to focus too much on scrubbers because they are they are kind of a um, only 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 part of the equation. What you have with the economics of scrubbers is really a sort of temporary trend. Uh, one of these things, like I said, costs a few million bucks, and you're you're betting on the, there being a spread between the price of the high sulfur and low sulfur fuels. That spread is now really really significant. It's two hundred and fifty dollars mm-hmm. per ton. We calculated that at $175 to $200, you can pay back one of these things in under two years. So $250, you're, you're, you're pushing closer toward 18-month payback. So really, you know, that, that's, 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 that's going to probably pay off the, the $3,000 that, that, that are, that are, that are going to be installed by the end of the year. We think around about $3,700, $3,800 are, are going to be installed you know, in total um, over, the next, over the next year or so. It also just seems like more time to allow for compliant fuel supply to build up, yeah? Well, this is the thing. Like after that you know, year, 18 months is up and those, those investments have been paid off, you're probably not going right. to want to install a scrub because you're not going to be able to get hold of the 3.5 fuel. You're not going to be able to get hold of the dirty stuff. So you might as well, you might as well um, uh, look beyond this, this, this transition technology and think, think longer term about how you comply with, with tightening regulations. Mm-hmm. There's also a risk, and this is this is going beyond the current uh, market question. But what's going to happen post IMO 2020? Naturally, there's there's going to be a push toward even more stringent targets, perhaps constraints on carbon emissions as well as sulfur um, content of fuels, which uh, is is causing uh, a lot of shipping companies to lose sleep. Can we talk about that for a second? Like regulations and and center of mass or, or where things are going. 
who is enforcing these rules, right? So is it just kind of consensus or did they ratify something, the shipping companies, or what are they losing sleep over? If they say, just forget it, I'm just not going to comply, who's going to say anything? Well, there's, there's two sectors which sort of fall outside of the, or fall through the cracks, should I say, of the, the global uh, climate policy debate. When you look at the Paris Agreement, it's structured around country-level targets. Mm -hmm. So each country uh, adopts an, uh, a goal for its long-term uh, carbon, low-carbon pathway. International aviation and international shipping are the two sectors which fall outside of that framework. Because which country are we talking about? Which right. country is responsible for those for, the, for those emissions and for that for that for that fuel consumption? So what you have is a, is a sort of delegation of the, uh, of the of the of the climate policy framework to the multilateral institutions which are most well aligned and, and most well positioned to be able to, to, to carry uh, the, uh, the issue um, into to, to some form of regulatory framework. So for, for aviation, you have ICAO, it's the International Civil Aviation Organization, and for shipping, you have the IMO. Uh, and the IMO operates um, in very much the same way as, as the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's a multilateral organisation. They have they have periodic meetings. They have working groups. They have uh, a number of leading voices. They have they have different um, uh, country groupings and uh, and and uh, coalitions which uh, which take on opposing positions and that and that drive the debate. So enforcement of this is driven through the IMO framework. To answer the question directly, enforcement is based at the flag state level. So in theory, if a, if a, if a ship is non-compliant, if a ship is, is, is uh, in some way breaking the rules, the procedure is to report that ship to the flag state. And the flag state is then uh, obligated under the IMO framework to act. Problem is, is that most flag states don't have the institutional capacity to do so because most ships are actually flagged in quite random parts of the world, Mauritius, Liberia, Panama, major flag states. And it's mainly because of various tax uh, um, reasons. Um, but, but as a result, it, it, it's, it's kind of an ineffective compliance framework for anything which is going to create you know, meaningful, meaningful disruption or, or, or require meaningful levels of, of policing. Um, so there is a discussion underway at the IMO at the minute about what to do about this. Do you shift the burden of compliance onto the port state? which is one way of thinking hmm. about it. Uh, so if you dock your vessel in Singapore, if you dock your vessel in Rotterdam, or if you dock your vessel in the UK, would the authorities in that jurisdiction have the, um, uh, have, have the ability under the IMO framework to impose sanctions or, or to, to, to impound vessels to, 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 to do what's necessary to enforce compliance? Uh, that is an unresolved discussion at this time. Is that why other industries or other people, investors, companies are interested in this? Because if it transitions to the, the port country, right, and my goods are being held up in port or outside of port, then that affects me. My deliveries are not being shipped, right? So is that why non-shippers are worrying about IMOers or something else? I think that the main reason why people, people are paying attention to this is because it is likely to, and already is, increasing the cost structure of the shipping industry. So in increasing the cost of shipping my stuff wherever. Yeah. The compliance issue is a bit of a red herring because most people are going to comply. Okay. The reason why most people are going to comply is because the companies involved here are major companies, especially on the container side okay. and on the tankering side. They're just not going to, they're not going to risk the reputational damage that non-compliance would, uh, um, would entail. If, if we're talking about small 
merchant vessels that are that are that are moving between ports in the region that are probably going to get away with it, then yeah, there's going to be non-compliance. But we're talking in terms of tons of fuel. We're talking we're talking small numbers. The the, the major components of of demand in the international shipping segment are um, container liners, tankers, which are going between major ports, uh, and and therefore we're gonna we're gonna likely see high high compliance rates across across the volumes that matter. The cost structure question is a really interesting one because the the global shipping industry. I'll take a step back. There has been a really surprising coalition of support for the IMO 2020. And I followed, I've followed through my career the climate negotiations and regulatory um, discussions at the international level uh, for many years. And, 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 and there's, there's never, ever been a situation that I've seen where governments and business and civil society all agree on the approach that's being taken and want it to be implemented mm. as intended. Um, if you look at, at, at the aviation discussion uh, in comparison, there's, there's a huge disconnect between the, the principles that the regulators want to work toward and what the aviation industry want, because there is no credible pathway the, for the aviation to reduce CO2 emissions, which is the discussion under the ICAO framework at the moment. For IMO 2020, though, the reason why the shipping industry are on board is because there's a big surplus of capacity in the market, and it's been there pretty much since the financial crisis. Before the financial crisis, there's a very high increase in the rate of shipbuilding. Uh, that overhang is still really, really depressing um, shipping rates globally across almost all segments, but particularly in the tank, in the uh, um, in, in in the in the bulk carrier segment. So, if you're Maersk or CMACGM or Hapag Lloyd or one of the other big container. Uh, container liners, or if you're uh, Costco, um, or, or one of the other big bulk carriers, what you what you want is to you want to flush out the smaller players. You want to try and get rid of that overcapacity. So what this mm. what this what this does is it increases the cost structure of the industry. The people who are less equipped to deal with that increase in in costs are smaller players. They're going to get out of our business first. You might have a little bit of pain if you're one of the one of the bigger players, but it's going to be to your benefit ultimately because because hopefully the whole market can be brought back into balance. So um, so I think that uh, in terms of cost, there's sort of two dynamics at play. One is the fuel costs are going to go up, but we're not talking a huge amount here. We're talking for a container to be shipped from Rotterdam to Singapore. It's approximately an increase of fifty to one hundred dollars, and I I live in Singapore. When I moved out there, moving my stuff cost thousands of dollars in containers. So you know, we're talking about um, a couple of percentage points in terms of in terms of the cost of transporting goods. However, the real shift or potential shift in the cost of shipping is not going to come from increased fuel prices. It's going to become from come from a tightening of capacity in the shipping market, which IMO 2020 is not in itself going to bring about, but it's definitely going to, um, it's definitely going to work in that direction. What are you watching for on January 1st? What are you going to know on January 1st that you don't know now? First thing I'm going to do when I open up my Bloomberg terminal on the first day, first, first trading day of the year, is to look at the price spread between high sulfur and low sulfur fuel oil. Uh, because that is the, 
uh, key indication of the extent of the dislocation in the market that this is causing. It reflects the balance of availability of compliant fuel with non-compliant fuel. Uh, it also uh, gives you an indication of how, how, how refiners are going to respond and what refiners are, are essentially faced with in terms of the pricing environment. So what happens from the uh, 1st of January will define how the dynamics of the downstream economics w- will look for a period of time and mm-hmm. and the question will then be how big is that dislocation and how likely is that dislocation to persist because that's going to that's going to create um trading opportunities it's going to it's going to create interesting unusual movements of of crude and products around the world potentially uh, there's also the potential for this to actually impact diesel prices quite consistently one of the big question marks that's been uh, hanging over the market all year is will IMO 2020 increase diesel prices overall? We've had this question from a number of clients that don't really have any interest in shipping. They just want to make sure that their cost of diesel doesn't go up. The expectation has been that it would. The expectation has been that there will be an increase in middle distillate demand. Middle distillates is the the catch-all term for diesel, for kerosene, for gas oil, for that middle cut of the barrel. And there has been uh, been this expectation that, that, that because of IMO 2020, more of the middle distillate uh, supply will have to be pushed into, into, the, into the marine sector. So far, that doesn't look like it's the case. So far, what we're actually seeing is the opposite. There's weak demand fundamentals for diesel because of the China-US trade war, because of weak Mm. economic growth fundamentals, um, because uh, there's been particular softening of demand uh, for diesel in India over the last few months. That's actually having much more of an impact um, on on refining margins uh, and middle distillate prices than IMO is at the moment. Whether or not come 1st of January that that switches uh, will will remain to be be seen. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I think we look forward in actually having you back after the 1st of Jan. And this has actually all had some time for the dust to settle or maybe the sulfur to settle, if you will. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Rich. Thanks for having me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.